I'm sitting here and I got this thing from the school and I push the button and it's my son's video and here are all the ingredients on the kitchen and he's got his measuring thing and it had little kitchen academy training all over it. And he's doing it. He's got the bowl and he's got all the ingredients and he describes them all and he's got, and then you need a half a teaspoon of this, you know? But what killed me, what, what really did it was his whisking, his whisking. Even everyone who saw it goes, he's whisking like a professional, got on an angle like this, not like an eight-year-old. And even my wife goes, how did he do it? That's Little Kitchen Academy. It was just another, I call them moments of truth, but I was so proud. Like, wow, man. A good kitchen produces good food, but a great kitchen brings people together. Welcome to Meet Me in the Kitchen, a podcast inspired by Little Kitchen Academy, exploring the key ingredients to a meaningful life and how they are changing lives from scratch. Here's my dad and your host, Scott Rintoul. Ask anybody about how they got to where they are today, and they'll tell you about key moments that altered the direction their life has taken. In some cases, those instances are obvious in real time. But far more often, it's only in retrospect that we realize how influential those moments truly are. And it's my belief that the vast majority of people want to use that lived experience to positively impact future generations. That's certainly the case with the founders of Little Kitchen Academy and those they welcome to join them in changing lives from scratch. In fact, this podcast was created to further illustrate just how far that philosophy extends beyond the actual environments in which the students are learning. And our next guest is a great example. Chris Connor of Cushman Wakefield works with Little Kitchen Academy to find the right locations in each community. It's not a role that Chris would have ever predicted for himself, but as you're about to hear, his open mind and curious nature have led him to a lot of wonderful opportunities throughout the years. To the best of my knowledge, you are the first varsity rugby player that we have ever had on the podcast. So is that a lifelong passion or is that a sport you happen to fall into at some point in time? How do you know that? Man, you're good. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, so I played rugby at Western, and it also helped my academics. I wasn't the greatest student, so to speak. One thing I promised my parents, it's actually the one thing I planned in my life was getting my university. But when I was in third year, I found I was doing rugby, and um, I had never played. My goal was to make varsity, and they said I'd never do it, right? From first year, I, you know, I kind of got dropped, and I just wouldn't go away. But you can come and practice with us. And I did. And I kept going. I didn't give up. I never do because I wanted it so bad. I made it finally with a couple of broken legs in the team, <laughs> fortunately. And then my second year, they told me, look, you can't be a flanker. We've got guys from New Zealand and Australia on the team. But if you're interested in bulking up, we might use as a prop which is the biggest guys. It's like a lineman in football. So I put on 30 pounds and I ended up making second team and I was the fastest prop in Ontario. I was also one of the smallest and man, did I take a beating in there. But it was a really good experience of tenacity and really wanting something. And it was funny how it helped me with my grades was in third year, I was just about getting the degree, right? I was like a 61 average. And then I found out in third year, you can do an honors program and I could come back and play rugby, but I needed 80. And so I dedicated to it. I got an 82 and, and got in to play another year. And I actually made first team varsity in that year out of nowhere. And it was one of the proudest things I've done just because I wasn't expected to even make a third team. And I just wouldn't give up on it. And it got me to study. 
and apply myself. And so I got an honors degree at it and I got to make varsity and it was a really good experience for me. It taught me a lot about, because at that point in my life, you know, I hadn't really applied myself a lot to things other than sports, but this got me, showed me I can do stuff. It was a real learning experience for me. (laughs) That's funny that you knew that. That was a good question. That's a fantastic story. And I'm interested to know what was it about rugby having never played it before that compelled you and captivated you and drew you into playing it? You know what? I was the smallest guy in my class. For whatever reason, my parents put me ahead. I I was skipped to grade when I was very young. Never advise anyone to do that. (laughs) So I was in the smallest guy in my class all the way through. So I played a lot of tennis and badminton and I taught kids. That's something we'll get to later. But I decided I started lifting weights when I was 15. I read a book. It's called Geordie. It's a Scottish book, a famous book about a boy that became a big guy. My mom and dad gave me that book. And that's what started it. And that was the first time I'd actually been mentored by someone as well. You know, I went into a gym not knowing anything. And a couple of older guys took me under their wing and showed me how to build and what to do and how to train. So anyway, I had that. And then I went to university and I wanted to do something. I was was a really good badminton player. They wanted me on the Western badminton team. But, you know, I've got to be honest, girls really weren't into that. And so uh, I was in Sydenham and the residence there at Western. And a few of the guys on my floor played for Western. And they said, you know, hey, why don't you come out? You don't need experience. They, of course, they sell me on, we need big guys. You'll make the team, no problem. <laughs> but that wasn't the case. I'll be honest again. The other thing was the girls. I'll be <laughs> they seemed to really gravitate to it. And I saw that. And, you know, when you get out there, I just loved it, man. It's one of the greatest sports, the camaraderie of teamwork, the fitness level. Like, you're the best athletes in the world, I think, because you're strong, you're built, but you got to be able to run. It's a beautiful game. And it was a game I, you know, I realized I could do after school and the relationships you build, you know, you beat the crap out of each other on the field. And then afterwards, you really do shake hands and drink together and share beers. It's just something I've never seen in the respect of your competitors and how hard you'll play and how you can just let it all go and share a beer. And I still have friendships, lifelong friendships from that. And it gave me that confidence. When I look back in my life, when I'm challenged with something, I always look back to that time where I didn't give up. Maybe I was too stupid to know, you know, what I was getting into because I literally got dropped once and I came back and I'm standing at the field and he goes, what are you doing here? You said I could train if I came. <laughs> and I slowly just wouldn't give up and I had a bit of luck. I think everything in life is luck to a point. And then there was this one game where the first and second team went off on the bus to a team. They would send us off in cars to go and play in Toronto and it's called Fletcher's Fields, north of Toronto, where the rugby teams were. And I played for the Toronto Barbarians. They put us in. And, and let us sub in. And we played a game. And then they said, does anyone want to play another game? And me and this other guy put up our hands and they were blown away that we did it, which is not easy to do. And it got recognized because one of the coaches, assistant coaches was watching. He saw that and he'd always seen me. He came up to me afterwards. I can't believe you did that. And you know what? We, we got our eye on you. There's so many lessons from that. I, I might have digressed there a bit from what the question was. I'm sorry. But you know, it's funny when you brought that up, I was not prepared for that. And it just brings back all these things of when I look back in my life and I need something to look back on for strength. And it's that moment, you know, when everyone said you can't do it. And and then I did it and also achieved my goals in school. Like I found out I can actually excel. So you take me right back to that moment. Right. And um, it's kind of cool. I've told my son that story too, not to give up on anything ever, you know, just keep trying no matter what other people tell you. And I've needed to do that. I've always been a slow starter in everything I've done. And I've always known that I can finish on top, but I'm one of those guys, no matter what, I'll be the last at the start, but I finish at the end. Well, it's interesting. You wouldn't know this, but we actually have some shared DNA. I am also a walk-on varsity athlete, and you wouldn't know it by looking at me, but 
I played football at the University of British Columbia, and a similar story to yours kept coming back, kept coming back. Eventually, it broke through. And I'm a big believer in team sports and at their best, what they have the ability to teach us. You obviously got a lot of those lessons from playing rugby, and they've served you well in your life. In your opinion, Chris, what makes a great team? Selflessness, hard work, you know, working together for a common goal. You know, we had a couple of prima donna types, and in rugby, it doesn't work. And, and there were good players, a couple of them. And I remember the coach in one day dumping probably our number two player and saying, no, you're not you know, playing anymore. And he was cut. And he talked to us about that, how important teamwork is to achieve goals. And I'm a firm believer in that. And, and it's funny you say that because in my business and brokerage, there's not a lot of team. People talk about it. They'll say we've got a team, but it's not as real as you think. I was very much someone that I've always been focused on team and my CW is a team. And part of that is sharing. I have a partner, Bahari Tabar, and we brought her on and she's a junior. And I immediately shared everything with her right off the bat. All my deals and, you know, as an incentive for now, because she's starting off, but also as a confidence booster to her that, no, no, we're a team, man. And it's not about me. And, you know, you're going to get a piece of all this. And I think it really resonated with her. And she brings a lot to the table, too, by the way. She's out of Toronto, and we're still a team together. It's funny, I grew up in a singular sport, badminton, tennis, squash, and I always kind of felt alone. And then I found rugby. That's where I really could tangibly see the benefits of working as a team with all different levels and skill sets and personalities that have to come together for a common goal. I tried to bring that throughout my life. And yeah, I, I've always liked working in teams. Well, and one of the things that you mentioned when you were describing your experience at Western playing rugby spoke to culture and the culture of the game and the culture of the sport. Once you left university and began working and got into your career, is that something you always saw it along the way, a good working culture? Yeah, I did, you know, and I always looked for places like the first job I got was with a developer in Toronto out of school. And my dad had given him his first job in the 60s. So he was kind of obligated to give me a job. <laughs> I finished with an honors degree at Western in criminology, sociology, BA, right? And I think university provides a great network, social skills network, unless you're doing the sciences or something. But I really didn't have anything like that. And I'm literally bagging sand in a lot after I graduated. And I don't really plan anything in my life, but I've got incredible luck. Things just seem to happen, you know, and I'm bagging sand because I love heavy lifting and brick and rock. And I, I literally a pamphlet fell out of this guy's pocket next to me bagging sand, literally. And it was urban land economics at a UBC. And my father was a chartered surveyor, which is the highest technical in the world designation like they're highly recruited and i brought this home to him and i think he was always concerned about me and he goes if you'll do this i'll pay for it and so it was a four-year postgraduate program which it's now urban land economics at ubc is the number one it's the top thing in our country and i did it and i and i stuck to it and i knew i would because of what happened in rugby and I, you know it wasn't easy and it's funny when i was being interviewed by david neal who's the gentleman my dad gave and he goes you know you got to do what you got to do sometimes and i remember in the fourth week on the job i was still in the course and he's throwing me right in the water. I'm doing all these performas on, on shopping centers we wanted. To, so what the company was, he'd buy small centers, kind of put some lipstick on them, you know, do the tenant mix and then flip them. And so I, I got thrown right in the mix right away doing performas. And as I said, I've always had this great luck when I'm in uh, buying and getting out. And by fluke, second day, he's got me doing performas on these developments, which is, you know, regression analysis and all this stuff. And I just happened to be studying that in second year. Urban Land. So I had my book open. And one day he came in and I'm coming back from lunch. And I, I didn't even know computers were just starting new. And I was losing my mind for the first three weeks because 
he'd come in every morning and give me all these assumptions on base rents and rents change. You make these assumptions, you throw them in for a 10 year window and he changed them on me. I'm working with this thing called Lotus 123. I don't know if anyone knows what that is. This is back in 88. <laughs> and we had DOS. They didn't have Windows. And literally, you, you formatted floppies, right? So I didn't know any of the, what these things were. And I had this screen with grids on it. And I'm putting numbers in. I'm up till 2, 3 in the morning every night. And finally, I thought I was going to lose. I, I don't know how they do this. And fortunately, an assistant came in and goes, what are you doing? You know they talk to each other, right? What? <laughs> I didn't know you could freaking put formulas in it. It was like, what? If she hadn't done that, it saved my life. But anyway, I digress. So one day I come back from lunch and there's the president and the vice president standing outside my office door. Hi, Chris, how you doing? Good. And they just point to my desk drawer, which is open with my urban land economics financial analysis textbook open right to the page. And they go, Chris, you told us you had urban land economics. I went, uh, David, I'm not sure if I said I had it. I think I, I said I was in it. <laughs> So it was good, I think, because of what, what my father had done. He didn't fire me right away, but he just said, okay, listen, if you can do it, you can keep your job. But I'm pretty sure you told us you had it. I'm pretty sure I didn't know, David. So anyway, it was another moment where they gave me another chance. And, you know, I just buckled down and did it. And the teamwork there was good. I mean, I, I really saw it, like, from that assistant that came in and helped me to the VP who was the CFO. You know, they all rallied together. And it was just another example of teamwork that I benefited from and I was never one to worry about the steps. I always looked ahead at the goal because I find if you ever get too caught up in the steps, you might never try. I've been very fortunate that way in my career and everything. I'm not a person that's ever thought of five-year plans. I never did any of that. It's not a dirty little secret, but it's a bit of one. And I don't, well, maybe I shouldn't be sharing that on this podcast, but it's never worked for me. I've had to say it. And I guess in my mind, I have a five-year plan. But it's not detailed. It's more I have a vision of where I want to be. And so I guess I do have a five-year plan. I do in a 10-year. But they're visions. They're not step-by-steps. There's big picture kind of steps of where I can see it going. I'm a very visual person. You grew up out east and you began your career out east. And from what I can tell from your resume, you were very successful. And yet, 2006, you decide to make the decision to leave the eastern time zone and head back out west to Calgary. Why did you decide to do that? Well, actually, what happened is in 1990, I was with David Neal and the company, and he was moving to Calgary. He's taking the company to Calgary, and he flew me out there. I'd been three years in. I'd, I'd started making money, good money. I mean, I'd spent two years making $19,000 a year, and then he threw down a check one day. I'll never forget this. He had me doing leasing at this center, right? I had no idea. I'm just doing it. And I'm making 19 grand a year because that's how the industry kind of works. You work like a dog for two years, make no money. And they want it that way. You got to show you're hungry. And one day I did this. It's called, I remember my first leasing deal was Lewis Craft. I met Mr. Lewis. And you know, it's funny. I talked about networking. I go in with him. I, I've been beaten up trying to lease this space. And I went into Mr. Lewis and he goes, where did you go to school? I said, oh, Western. I'm kind of down because I hadn't had any luck. And he goes, you're all right, man. I'm a Western alumni. And I went, ooh. And that was my first taste of networking and how it works. And he kind of took me under his wing. And I remember going back to David, I think I got a deal. And we were asking like $18 a square foot or something. And he goes, oh, yeah, really, Chris? And so would well, you have a paper? Go, no, not yet, but he's going to share it to me. And I remember we got the offer back at like 12 bucks. Oh, <laughs> but anyway, we got the deal done. And then he threw down this, I'm making 19000 He came and goes, here's your first commission check. It was $5,000. What the heck? That's 25% of my salary. And it's just one deal. I had no idea I was even getting paid. And that was off to the races after that. 
I was doing leasing and sales, right? And it was a great experience. So long story short is I was making money. I'd made a really good amount of money that 1990, you know, above what most people make. And I was like, well, this is a good industry. And then he, David came in and said, we're going to go to Calgary. If I step back, I wasn't just in East. My, my father followed real estate, right? So we were born in Montreal, moved to Toronto. He was one of the first guys in with Morgard, a company called Morgard. He was a leader there. And then we went to Calgary for two years. Then we were in Vancouver for four years and then back to Toronto for high school. So we moved around. But anyway, he flew me out there in 1990. It was minus 38 when I got off the plane. And I'm um, no. <laughs> so I didn't come with him. I went and got a, I was a bouncer at Skydome Hard Rock Cafe trying to figure it all out. And a long story short, the wind kind of flew me around into the States for a few months. I lived in San Diego and I was graduating for Urban Land Economics. So I still hadn't graduated, right? <laughs> and so I'm now graduating. And we went up to Whistler to celebrate my graduation. And literally, there's some guys I worked with in Whistler at Hard Rock. So literally, I'm sitting at the Longhorn, and this is back before it's developed. And I see this van that they drive. It's only one. It's spray painted. And sure enough, it's them. I didn't even know they were there. And this is the craziness of my life. And I'm going, Dad, hold on. And I sprint out to the road. And there they are. And they go, hey, Chris, we just got a place. There's one bedroom left. Do you want it? Come stay for the winter. I said, absolutely. (laughs) And my dad is like, I've never seen him so disappointed. I come back. Dad, you know what? You know, I want to get back in shape, take a winter off, you know, get my thoughts back, you know, and I'll come back to Toronto after, right? So I was in Whistler for 10 years and I wanted to stay in, in retail. And I got into retail uh, management with IntraWest at the time at Blackcomb and looked after their rental shops and their high performance shop and also got into snowboarding. And I got a, my instructor's license. And so I was teaching as well at the kids' school and, and snowboarding. And then I got into snowboard racing. For some reason, I had a knack for it. And a lot of the guys up there that did it at that time, so I trained with Ross Rebagliati and all those boys, J.C. Anderson. And this is another story of perseverance, I guess. One day, I was racing in the Kokanee series, and I was older because I got there when I was 26, probably about 28. I really wanted it bad. I wanted to be a snowboarder, and then I got into hard booting and racing because I love speed. And for some reason, I was winning races like out of nowhere. I wasn't the most technical guy, but I had an ability to go quick, and I started winning. And I remember my third race, I won a Super G and blew me away. And there were a couple of Canadian national team members in the race. And I actually beat Ross Rebagliati once, only because he didn't show up for the second run <laughs> on a GS. But there was a Canadian coach there. And he came up to me and he goes, who the hell are you? And I, you know, I wanted it. So I said, listen, can I train? He said, if you help set up the courses, you can train with us. So I did. And I had a goal. I decided I'm going to shoot for the World Cup and see if I can make it. But I wasn't a guy that was going to willing to be a bus boy. And, you know, it cost about 40000 a year to train back then. You know, so I, I was sponsored and stuff for equipment and all that. And I just kept going. And people said, you're never going to make it, man. Like, <laughs> and I wouldn't give up. And I found a way. Um, and I ended up making the World Cup in 1996 for Britain. But I got my fist license. I had enough points and I persevered. And man, it's a different game, right? I was just happy to be there. Like, I'm just happy to be here, boys, and not finish DFL. Dead and last. And I never did. But that was a massive achievement for me. And I did three World Cup races. One of my prouder moments, really proud of that, because no one said I could do it. And I did it. And my parents got to see me. And again, I wasn't up there competing for the podium, but it was a cool goal. And I was up there for 10 years uh, and again, stayed in retail management and then got to 2000. I had a, a bad training accident, which ended my career and went off into the trees almost lost my life, actually. But it dummied me right up. I lost the edge. That ended my career, I think, in 97, 98. And, but I, st- I was still up there. And then I got a little old for Whistler. 
came down and was a data analyst briefly. And I was just kind of staying, hanging out in Vancouver and an opportunity came up for a job in Calgary. And so I took that job. I ended up joining Avis and Young, commercial real estate. Again, this comes back to team. I always kind of favored representing tenants as opposed to landlords. And that comes back to a story back in my early days when I saw what a landlord did to a tenant, a mom and pop fish and chip Scottish family, and I'm Scottish. And I was part of that, not knowing to myself, uh, ethically, I just didn't like how it was handled. So I decided I was going to try and help the little guy. So I was out there, my girlfriend at the time, it was her father to help me get a job there. I fell in love at 42. And then I joined the Orange Group after Avison because that was a tenant rep company. They had a good reputation. They were very team orientated. They shared everything. And a gentleman named Grant Coswin, who was a wonderful man, a great guy, very smart, gave me the opportunity there and then gave me a piece of the company, a small piece, but he gave it to me just because I, you know, he'd see me in there at quarter six in the morning and, you know, working my ass off. And, and we always tried to keep it a team and I really enjoyed it and, and got to work with some amazing groups. We had Starbucks, they did, you know, sports check work, Mark's work warehouse, H&R Block. I really, really enjoyed it. I had Western Canada and a typical broker normally works in a small area. I was able to use a much broader canvas to do my work. And then my wife and I in 2019, you know, we miss Vancouver a lot and Calgary is an amazing place. I love the work ethic there. I love a lot of things, but we missed our families. And we had a child, Finley, and we just missed being around family. So we made the decision to move back. And it was fortunate. We came back like three months before the pandemic, or we'd still be there. And I was looking for a place to land and grow what we do. And CW, Christian Wakefield, seems like such a perfect fit for what I was doing. And Bahari at that time was with me of the Orange Group. We approached Cushman and, and went from zero in 12 days, we're hired. And we've been there ever since. And it's an amazing experience. And it's funny that, you know, you hear about places that uh, brokerages that talk about team and all this. And I can honestly say that the Cushman Wakefield office in Vancouver lives it. Very collaborative. You know, it's a world of sharks, right? That's the nature of the business. You eat what you kill. But I've never seen anything quite like how uh, everyone collaborates and shares information. It's lived up to that. And so I'm very happy. They're very lucky. Yeah. Well, you've mentioned a lot of themes that coalesce at Little Kitchen Academy collaboration, family, culture, teaching, all things that have meant something to you in your life. How did Little Kitchen Academy first come onto your radar, Chris? One thing I, I would also say before I go further is that I was a very selfish person. In one sense, most of my life, it was all about me and stuff. I lived the condo lifestyle. I, you know, I didn't have girlfriends. And, and then I met my wife, my wife now, Jane Weston, and it changed everything, right? I fell in love my 40s, very late. And then, <laughs> and then we got married and children weren't on the radar either. The last thing I wanted was a child. I, I was a child myself, it seemed like, but things change. And she convinced me and, and we had Finley. I had Finley when I was 50 years old. My wife's quite a bit younger. So here I am, my whole life changed. Meeting her changed. I'd always loved teaching children, but when you have a child, it changes everything, right? Suddenly you're responsible for this being and you become the most selfless person. Well, I think you're a good parent, you do. And so in 2020, I was driving my boy to skating lessons at UBC and I turned left and I'm driving up the road and all of a sudden I see a McLaren and a Bentley and these people, parents like lining up and I'm going, what the heck is this? I remember Finley looking over and goes, what's going on, daddy? <laughs> he was six at the time. I go, Son, we got to stop. I got to know what this is. So anyway, I get out, I go over and I go and I'm talking to the parents. I hear a little bit about it. I had to get to the lesson and I was just intrigued and 
I've always worked with people I enjoy or things that I enjoy and don't compromise on that. And I called Brian and Brian being Brian, you know, I, I looked him up and to Jesus, he's not going to talk to me. <laughs> and well, he talked to me. All right. He called me back. He was fantastic. And I, I went and met him and he was so gracious. And of course, it wasn't about real estate at the time. I did ask him, but he had representation and I'm not one to step on toes, but I was more about my son. And he told me all about it. And, and everything he was telling me, he just kept checking all these boxes like, everything and the concept, Felicity's passion for the Montessori angle. And we did get a little into how it all works, but not as much as I did later. But I just saw the legs to this thing. And I thought, man, if there's ever an opportunity to work with you, I'd love the opportunity. And so in the meantime, I put my son into it because of course, as most kids do, he, he likes the brown food and, and getting him hooked on green stuff is not easy. And <laughs> I'll be honest with you, I'm still fighting that battle for myself. So I wasn't the greatest role model. And so I put him in there and then I started to learn about it. Right. And the first time he came back and I think it was risotto he had made. And I'm going, what the hell? And then I found out you don't know the meal. And then I loved the idea. That's how I sold it to my wife is, well, he's learning life skills. It's not about cooking so much as Brian told me. It's about math. It's about all these other things. And that's what it is about. That's the fundamental reason is improving their life skills for children. I always thought, man, it's cool. We have a kitchen. He learns to measure and helping his math, but also maybe we can get him interested in broccoli. So he always loved the dessert. <laughs> that's always his favorite one. So we did that one. We did another one. And then I just happened to just follow up with Brian one day. I was just chatting. He said, you should come on in. And there was an opportunity, I guess, for real estate. And I jumped on it, you know, and I really started to learn more and more about what his concept is. You know, aside from the children and Felicity's friggin' passion, both of them, but Felicity, unwavering dedication to children. And I'll tell you a story about how I know. Can I digress just quickly on that? So... I have a friend at another business, and I, and I wanted him and Brian to meet. Just that they're both very smart men, and they both have passion for children and charitable work. So I introduced them, and they actually met last week. And my friend, I met him for lunch, and he had brought his little boy, Zion, who's five and a half. And I guess when they met, Felicity came down, and she just took Zion and started teaching him, apparently. And, and my friend's just blown away. Like She taught him how to make zucchini noodles. This is just Felicity coming downstairs and saying, oh, there's a little boy. Can't leave that hanging. Here we go. And it blew my friend away and didn't blow me away. I know how Felicity operates, but I just thought that's a moment of truth right there. Here's a lady who came down out of her way, didn't expect it, and just gravitated to this little boy as she does, right? And I've always seen that. And of course, Brian, they both share the passion, but obviously Felicity's the core of all this and her passion for the Montessori style. So it's just reinforced what I've always known about these two. You know, Brian's business acumen and Felicity's passion. Of course, Brian also has, has the passion, right? And, and really improving kids' lives through this vehicle. So that's how I ended up getting involved. And then, of course, as I was doing this, we're building it and, and you know, they're being very careful about how they operate and how they're building it and what they're doing. So you know, I, I really wanted to be involved and help them any way I could. Chris, I get the sense your answer to this question is not going to be zucchini noodles, but everybody who comes on this podcast answers this question. So I'm going to ask you now, what is the one ingredient that is always in your kitchen and why? <laughs> well, I'm going to have to tell you, it's going to think it's odd, but it's probably Yorkshire pudding. And, and I'll also add in there maple syrup, but Yorkshire pudding. My wife, you know, we're Scottish and English, and it's always been a, a staple in my family. Sunday nights, man, Yorkshire pudding, and it's like candy to me. And there's a funny story to this. I always ask for 18, even though there's just three of us. So that's always got to be there. I could eat Yorkshire pudding every day. And then maple syrup. I love maple syrup since I was a boy. 
I think it drives Jane crazy because I probably drink two ounces a day and I drain it, right? And it's not because we had pancakes. I just do it. I used to actually drink it before I raced. And you know what's an interesting thing? I couldn't believe it. I think there's something about maple syrup, man, that we're made to drink it because it always gave me extra energy. And last year on the WT, I'm a big tennis fan, the Canadian player, and he actually in a match was seen drinking maple syrup. And he mentioned something about it. I just thought that was fascinating. But so Yorkshire pudding. And this leads me to, if I may share a story about how successful the program was for my son, talking about the skills that they do. So the school he goes to at St. Augustine's down here, great school. They had to pick something from their culture to present. And I'm sitting in the living room and I'm just hearing this. And I just yell, hey, well, Yorkshire pudding. We're Scottish, use Yorkshire pudding, right? And sure enough, that's what he does. And I guess they present this to the school and they do a video of what they're doing. And so I'm looking at this video, right? And I'm watching it and he set it all up. He's got all the ingredients up and he did it. And it was like, you know, those cooking shows. And my wife goes, well, we can't do that because you don't have time to cook it. And I said, no, no, do it like the cooking show. You know, you show it all out and then you pull out the finished product. Like what's her name or the Galloping Gourmet or Julia Childs. And so, oh, okay, we'll do that. So I'm sitting here and I got this thing from the school and I push the button and it's my son's video. And my wife had set it up. She's wonderful. God bless her. And here are all the ingredients on the kitchen. And he's got his measuring thing. And it had little kitchen academy training all over it. And he's doing it. He's got the bowl and he's got all the ingredients. And he describes them all. And he's got, and then you need a half a teaspoon of this, you know. But what killed me, what, what really did it was his whisking. His whisking. Even everyone who saw it goes, he's whisking like a professional. Got on an angle like this. Not like an eight-year-old. And even my wife goes, how did he do it? That's little kitchen academy. But he knew how to pour. You know what I mean? It was just another, I call him over the truth, but I was so proud. Like, wow, man. And I even said to him, he stood out. And of course, he took 36 Yorkshires to school. But the best part is on, in the video, I wish I could send it to you. I, I probably could. I was going to send it to Brian. He's all right there. And my mom's in the background going, okay, and what's next? And then, and he pulls out from underneath the table, Yorkshire pudding's complete, right? And here's the product. But he took 36 of them to school and it was the most popular thing. People wanted more. But anyway, I'll just never forget his measurements and how he did it with his hands and how particular he was and how it all goes in. You could just see it. And then the whisking. I'll never forget that to the rest of my life. And he makes great Yorkshire. So for any parents out there listening, it's an amazing program. My son eats broccoli and loves it because he knows he can do it. You know, he's much more favorable there. And it's just an incredible thing. I can't speak enough about the tangible and the intangible benefits of it. You know, he's done three. Of course, he wishes there were dessert every time because I think they do a breakfast, a lunch, a dinner, and then a dessert. His favorite was they made cinnamon buns one day. And he just comes it all glazed. He's supposed to give them to us and he's eating them all. So that was my favorite. It's Yorkshire pudding. <laughs> you were fine because you just had yourself a glass of maple syrup. You didn't need the cinnamon buns that day. <laughs> when you're not drinking maple syrup, I did want to finish with this. I understand that you are a connoisseur of scotch. Are you neat or on the rocks? I'm on the rocks. I am. And Brian treated me to a very nice scotch one day and as like water. I was like, oh, I wanted to stay. <laughs> but yeah, my wife's in the business. Yes. So we're very fortunate. I wasn't a big scotch drinker until I tried some fine scotch. But yes, yeah, I'm on the rocks. How about yourself? Are you a scotch fan? I do like scotch, and I would prefer it neat as opposed to on the rocks. I graduated to neat, so that's how I would prefer it. But I want you to finish this sentence for me, Chris. A glass of fine scotch is best enjoyed with... A good cigar? I'll be honest. <laughs> and your mates, and your loved ones. But yeah, fine cigar, oh man. Yeah. <laughs> 
That's what I would say. Well, maybe one day we will get together and we will have a glass or two. This has been a fantastic conversation. I've learned so much about you. You've led a compelling, interesting life. I wish you all the best. Thank you very much for doing this. Gosh, Scott, thank you, man. And I'd like to get you to know you better. It's been all about the questions to me, but you know, I've listened to the podcast. You do an awesome job, brother. And it's been really fortunate. I'm enjoying the ride. Keep it up. Meet Me in the Kitchen is curated and produced by Toolkit Content. You can find more information about Little Kitchen Academy, including classes, locations, employment, and franchise opportunities at littlekitchenacademy.com. What's the one ingredient that's always in your kitchen? 